0: An exhaustion podcast presented by ITL Coaching and Performance. My name is George Darden. I'm an endurance athlete and coach here in Atlanta, Georgia. On this podcast, we discuss issues of interest to the local, the national, and the international endurance communities. Thanks for listening, and thanks for all the visits and the likes on the Facebook page. Tonight is part two of our conversation on fatigue. Uh, I've gotten lots of good feedback on part one, lots of good questions, and a lot of people talking to me in various places about the different studies we discussed. It is indeed really, really fascinating stuff. But if you haven't listened to part one, you need to go back and listen to that before you listen to part two here. Um, Part one, I believe, is episode four, and this, of course, is episode six. Um, One of the people that I was talking to uh, said that she had listened to the other podcast on fatigue, episode four, uh, where we talked about fatigue that happens during a race, fatigue that actually makes you slow down during a race uh, and will make you stop uh, if you end up getting too tired. Um, And She asked me what kind of professor I was, um, and she said, are you an exercise physiology professor or something like that? Um, And I'm not. My job is a college professor, my day job. When I'm not coaching people and when I'm not being an athlete myself, uh, I'm a college professor. But I'm a professor of history and philosophy. And the reason why I mention it is because even though I'm not a professor of exercise physiology... The fact that I am a professor means a few things, and I think those things are kind of woven into the shape of this podcast, which is worth mentioning here at the outset. First is that I tend to turn to research for answers. Uh, When people ask me questions, if I don't know the answer to it, if I haven't found research supporting it in the past, uh, the first place that I go is to actually see if there is any scholarly research on those questions. Um, And I think that's, that's in part based on the fact that I've spent a whole lot of time reading research in all sorts of different fields, including the, my field, history and philosophy. Um, recently, one of the podcast listeners named Jacqueline um sent me her theory about people who stand and sit and uh their ability to produce power on the bike which i thought was an interesting theory and i did a little bit of research on it and found that there in fact was some some correlation between muscles firing and people who stand at work rather than people who sit Uh, i'm not going to talk about it any more than that though because i think i'm going to make it a part of a later podcast but um i tend to go to research when in fact somebody asks me a question and i think that's in part because of my academic training um Secondly, I tend to approach research with a fairly open mind, Um, and what I mean by that is I try not to use research as a way of actually confirming the biases that I already have. Um, If somebody asks me a question and I'm not certain of the answer or I haven't really truly looked into it... um, I tend to try and approach the research with an open mind. Well, let's see what the research says. Let's see what the data say um, and draw a conclusion based upon that. I think a lot of folks sometimes will, will, will look at research or they'll look at anything um, and they'll see it through the lens of the biases that they already have, um, whether it's a politician who puts out an idea and you don't like that politician, so you automatically don't like the idea, even if a politician who you did like were to put out the same idea, um, and and you therefore are biased against it, or perhaps um, you see evidence that points you in a particular direction, but you're already convinced of the innocence of a person that you turn a blind eye to that evidence, Um, or vice versa, of course. Um, I think that it's possible to approach research, and if it confirms some of your biases, you'll say, oh yes, that's absolutely, that's good, good research, uh, regardless of the quality of the research. Um, And in fact, if it's if it doesn't confirm your biases, it goes against what it is you think, um, you're willing to cast it off as if it's not good research, even if it is. Um, so approaching research with an open mind is something that I try to do as well that I think you'll hear hear a little bit as well. Um, third, um, and this might sound a little bit contrary to what I just said, but I also understand what the limits of research are. Um, specifically, research sometimes can be difficult to conduct. Um, And the way that studies are operationalized is not always in a way that would give us the best possible information. And what I mean by that is that sometimes we put a little bit too much stock in research when perhaps we shouldn't. There are times when research comes into conflict with conventional wisdom. And there's a lot of folks who would say, oh, well, you know, if it's been researched, if it's been proven in a lab, then that automatically trumps conventional wisdom. And I actually don't believe that that's so. Um, having spent a lot of time around research, having conducted research myself, I know that research is a good guidepost, but it shouldn't always be the hitching post. And sometimes conventional wisdom is is as good as the research you might find that has been conducted in a scientific laboratory. After all, conventional wisdom is normally something that has been tested and proven or disproven over the course of many, many generations. And that process in itself is, in fact, scientific. I think a couple of good examples of this... um, We talked a few weeks ago with Will Kramer from West Stride about the new movement inside of shoes towards minimalism and towards allowing feet to move in the way that they naturally do. Um, And this was a departure from the so-called pronation paradigm, this idea that you need to control the motion of the shoes in order to ensure that they're pronating in the proper fashion. Um, That pronation paradigm, that idea that we needed to approach shoes as a prescription for ill-moving feet... That actually was born out of a body of research that was done in the 1980s, and the reason why that research was done in the 1980s was because we had the technological tools to do that research. But now our technological tools are more advanced, and we can do more advanced research, and we can understand the complexities of the way the foot moves even better that's shown us that there's a whole lot more to it than just... Pronation, under pronation, and over pronation. Um, I think another good example of it is fat, carbohydrates, and protein. Um, when I was coming along in the 1990s, there was very much a push towards high carbohydrates and low fats, and proteins were yeah, kind of something you could sort of forget about. Um, the reason why that was is because we had done a lot of research on the way that proteins and fats and carbohydrates work inside the body, but it was still very limited research based upon our understandings of the human body. Now, over time, we're beginning to find that that conventional wisdom about fat, carbohydrates, and proteins, i.e. that they should be fairly balanced and that your food should be natural foods, whole foods, rather than highly processed things, regardless of what the makeup of the micronutrients are, um, we're starting to find that the conventional wisdom really trumps some of the exercise science from the late 1980s and early 1990s in terms of fat, carbohydrates, and proteins. The nutritional picture is much more complex than that, and we're going to be talking more about nutrition later on. Um, the third place where I always think about it has to do with uh, trail running um, and running on soft surfaces. Um, there are multiple exercise uh, physiology studies that have demonstrated that running on trails, doing your long run on trails don't make a whole lot of difference in injury rates Um, and in fact show that that if you have tendinopathies, if you have issues with your Achilles tendon, then running on trails because of the movement of your foot from side to side a little bit more as you negotiate the roots and the rocks on the trails could actually be worse for tendinopathies than running on smooth things. That the impact forces on your feet don't actually matter all that much in in injury and so making the surface softer actually science says doesn't make any difference now that is in direct contravention of the conventional wisdom on running Uh, The conventional wisdom from generation after generation of high-level runners says doing your longer runs and even your shorter and your faster runs on softer surfaces is a good thing for you, not only because it's softer on your body, but also because it requires greater strength from your body to move yourself forward in space. Um, That is a place where conventional wisdom and exercise science are very much at odds with one another, Um, and it's something that hasn't really been worked out just yet, so I'm not quite ready yet, being someone who has run a great deal on trails um, and who still prescribes soft services for a lot of my athletes, to say the exercise science is definitive. The exercise science says that trails don't make a difference, because I've seen that they do make a difference, not only with the athletes that I coach, but with myself. So, all those things are things that are important to keep in mind when it comes to research, and of course when it comes to listening to this podcast, which is, after all, brought to you by a professor. Um, Anyway... On to the topic at hand here about fatigue. Uh, do you remember my friend Travis, my Facebook friend Travis? Travis lives in Chattanooga, not too far away from here, and he's an all around interesting guy. Travis is an African American vegan triathlete who likes guns. He describes himself that way. Um, he is a very unique guy. He's multi layered, as a matter of fact. And I submit, by the way, that you're only going to find somebody who's that unique and that multi layered in the South, but that's another podcast topic. Um, A few weeks ago, when he was preparing for the New Orleans-Louisiana Marathon, he wrote uh, in his Facebook, after he had to cut a long run short from 20 miles to 9 miles, the following, quote, Anyone who knows me knows my attitude towards rest. It's something that I can do when I'm dead. Well, Sunday's humbling long run told me, in no uncertain terms, that I'm worn out. A 20-mile run ended after 9 miles. Admittedly, I was running while dealing with a case of mild bronchitis." So this week, I've been pulled way back. No swimming while I deal with bursitis in my elbow. Only light running and cycling. I'm doing my part by closing my laptop and sending my last work email at midnight. Good night. Now, unquote, I followed up with Travis later on and said, hey, I'm going to use your quote as a hook in my podcast. Um, And he wrote back to me, yeah, you know, I did this last year, too. I just refused to acknowledge fatigue until I got a hip injury that nagged me for a month. Now, there's a few things in Travis's quote that I want to point out before we actually get into some of this research on overtraining and on long-term fatigue. One, note that he had to cut his in, his run short. That goes without saying. Number two, he said that he was dealing with a case of mild bronchitis. Number three, he said that he had bursitis in his elbow. Number four, he said that he was closing his laptop and sending his last work email at midnight. All of these things together paint a picture of what was going on in Travis's life leading up to the moment at which he had to cut that run short. This sort of thing is super common. I see it all the time in the athletes I coach and in the athletes that I don't coach. Um, And you hear it, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, in all the rhetoric around a lot of the stuff that we do. No pain, no gain. Go hard or go home. I figured I would go big right at the start. Um, I fight against this in my athletes all the time. My athletes presume that if they do two extra swims a week or three extra runs per week, or if I prescribe them to do six miles and they do nine, that I'm going to be happy about that because they're working harder than I prescribed. They're exceeding my expectations. And in fact, that's not the way I approach it at all. That's not how I think about it at all. And fight... In fact, I'm fighting to try and hold them back. Um, I think that I found, particularly in coaching adults, but it's been true when I coached youth as well, that as a coach, I spend more time trying to hold my athletes back than I do trying to push them forward. I've even fought it in my fellow coaches. Um, Not my coaches now at ITL Coaching and Performance, but I think in particular about an assistant coach that I had when I coached high school cross country. I had my athletes doing hard workouts on Mondays and Wednesdays. Um, And then we do a regular run on Thursday. Friday, we take it pretty easy, and we normally had a race on the weekend. Um, My athletes were coming into their Friday's runs very tired, and it got to a place where they were actually underperforming on the weekends. After this had happened for a couple of weeks, I started asking around, asking them, talking to my assistant coach, and I came to realize that my assistant coach was making them do extra hill repeats on Thursday afternoons. And of course, I confronted the coach about it, and he thought that it was a good thing that he was having them do extra hard work, making them work super duper hard, adding on top of the hard work that we were already doing. Um... It wasn't, and I couldn't talk him out of it so much so that I had to rework the weekly schedule to where we didn't work as hard on Wednesday in order to accommodate his Thursday workout, um, and I just didn't make him entirely aware of it. My wife, when she's coached middle school cross-country, she's had parents who have taken their children home after cross-country practice and made them run more, thinking that they were doing them a favor, thinking that they were pushing them to a higher level. In fact, that's not really pushing it to a higher level. It's leading towards Overtraining. Now, what I'm talking about and what Travis described there is what is generally referred to as overtraining. Now, 61%, it's estimated that about 61% of runners sometime during the course of their running career are going to go through a bout of overtraining. I would submit, even though I don't know, I would submit that number is probably lower in triathletes um, for reasons that I'll explain here in just a few minutes. We don't exactly know the number in triathletes or in many other sports. We That number in, in runners, that 61% number, is actually kind of dodgy. And the reason why is because it's hard to nail down exactly what overtraining is is. Um, it's hard to operationalize, as I was explaining before, and so it's really, really hard to research. But generally, there's a few things that we can point to. We can say that this is what a person experiences when they've gotten to that completely under-rested, over-trained place. Uh, number one, they tend to have an elevated heart rate. Um, now, interestingly enough, the heart rate tends to be elevated when they're at rest, but not when they are at uh, doing the exercise. In fact, your heart rate tends to be lower When you are exercising, Um, if you find yourself training and you're digging hard to get to the top of a hill and your heart rate's not getting up all that high, you might think that that indicates that you are super fit, but in fact it indicates that your heart is tired, is overtired, and you're not able to reach those higher levels of your heart rate. So an elevated heart rate while resting but a depressed heart rate while exercising is one of the signals. Another signal is disturbed sleep. Um, getting ready for Kona in 2012, for weeks and weeks and weeks, I felt like I was ha- having a hard time getting a good night's sleep. And that was in large part because I was overtrained uh, leading up towards that race. Um, irritability, you lose your patience easily, you're annoyed easily, um, uh, your mood is bad. Um, Constant fatigue. Now, yes, indeed, fatigue is a big part of of, of the endurance process, Um, but constant fatigue that you're never able to get over even after you've rested, even after you've had a couple of good nights of sleep is a signal of overtraining. And then in the final stages, uh, nagging injuries and, of course, sicknesses can be indications of of overtraining as well. Um, Overtraining, once you get to that place, if you truly dive deeply into overtraining, it can take weeks months and even years to actually for your body to recover from overtraining. Uh, A well-known coach, Joe Friel, uh, said that he once saw a career, a pro athlete's career end because the athlete never entirely got over over the overtraining. Ryan Hall, uh, a very well-known American marathoner, uh, one of the greats in American distance running over the course of the past decade and a half, retired within the last two or three weeks, Uh, and many people believe the reason for it is because he got into a chronically overtrained state and he never was able to get out of it. Uh, he said immediately prior to his retirement that he was hardly running even 12 miles a week, only a couple of miles a day, and still was sleeping 12 to 15 hours a week. He got into this super duper chronic fatigue, overtrained state, um, Now, some people say that there are two types. Some people say that there's psychological overtraining and physical overtraining, physiological overtraining. Um, I submit that it's no different. Um, If you do think there's a difference, I encourage you to go back and listen to episode four once again. The brain and the body don't work in contravention of one another. They work together. The brain runs the body. If you are psychologically tired, you will be physiologically tired and vice versa. Um, and so, if you're overtrained in one, you're going to be overtrained in the other. Now, it comes from a repeated non recovery. Overtraining doesn't come from simply doing one big mammoth workout that wipes you out entirely. Um, now, in newer or older athletes, it can set in fairly quickly in less than a month. But just like one workout isn't going to prepare you totally for your big race. One workout isn't going to completely wipe you out and put you into the doldrums of uh, of overtraining. Um, rather, it has to be chronic under-resting. It has to be chronic lack of recovery. It has to be stacking up too much fatigue on top of fatigue, on top of stress, on top of fatigue that's ultimately going to lead to overtraining. Now, I know you're saying, isn't it good to work hard? Yes, Absolutely. It is good to work hard. I expect the athletes that I coach to work hard. I consider myself a very hard worker when, in fact, I'm not injured. Um, but there's a difference between overreaching and overtraining. By all means, you should push beyond your comfortable limits. You should be trying to do more. You should be going to the well and digging deep fairly often in your training. Um, but there is what we call functional overreaching, and then there's non-functional overreaching. Functional overreaching is when you're going to the well, when you're digging deep, when you're working hard, but then you're allowing your body to recover such that it can absorb all the hard work that you've done. Non-functional overreaching is when you're going to the well, but then you're not letting yourself recover. And doing that over the course of weeks and months will ultimately lead to the dreaded overtraining syndrome. So let's talk a little bit about some of the research. There was a Meta-analysis in the year 2000 that was done, um, meta-analyses are pretty interesting. What a meta-analysis is is when somebody looks at all of the studies about a particular topic. And so you can imagine that lots of people have done independent studies on overtraining. Well, in 2000, you had one researcher go in and look at all of the studies on overtraining. And they're really useful because it says, okay, these are what all of the studies are finding. And frankly, they save people like me the time. Uh, of having to read all 50 studies because rather this person read all 50 studies and said, here's the big trends we're looking at. And so they found that there was uh, a few very common contributing factors. Uh, Factor number one was a sudden increase in training volume or intensity. And so if you ratchet it up really, really quickly, um, or if you dial up the intensity super quickly, um, uh, that will cause potentially some overtraining uh, over the course of uh, a couple of weeks. Second, repeating the same training day in and day out, which I think is interesting. And third, self-reported high stress levels, whether they were related to the training or not. Now, there's some big takeaways here from this meta-analysis of all the research on overtraining. First, sudden increases in training volume or intensity. Um, I had an athlete just a couple of weeks ago who's training for an Ironman. Um, I just turned up the volume and the intensity of his cycling, um, and I left his swimming and his running alone as a result, he wrote to me and said, hey, we're Ironman training now, don't I need to be swimming and running more? No, you don't, because I was trying to avoid trying to increase his training and volume intensity too much all at one time. But I think that we do that, though. We get 16 weeks out or 12 weeks out or something like that, and we say, all right, now we're training. Um, And we ratchet up that intensity really, really, really quickly. Um, That's a good way to quickly get overtrained. Um, Repeating the same training day in and day out. You remember before I said that I think the triathletes are actually less likely to be overtrained. This is why. um, I think that because triathletes don't do the same training day in and day out, because they vary between three sports or four, if you include strength work, that means that triathletes have... Uh, a better possibility of not getting um, overtrained. Now, that being said, it's totally possible to go really, really hard on the bike, then really, really hard in the pool, then really, really hard on the run, and just do it really hard every single day and trick yourself into thinking that you're recovering because you're doing three different sports. Yeah, not quite um so so there's a balancing act that that's a little bit more difficult to actually pull together in triathlon than it is in simply running or simply cycling however i do submit that that because triathletes don't do the same training every day they aren't as susceptible to overtraining um, as as runners or just cyclists would be. Um, and then the last thing I mentioned there, self-reported high stress levels related to training or not. I think that's important to keep in mind because your body doesn't always differentiate the level the varying sources of stress. Um, as one of my former coaches used to say, stress is stress. Um, whether that stress is coming from your work or coming from your training, um, that stress is going to have an effect on your system and could ultimately lead you to undertraining. To be clear, let's imagine that you are training seven hours a week, one hour every single day, every single day for uh, several weeks on end, seven hours a week. Um, and everything's going fine. You've never been overtrained. It's the right perfect amounts for you. And then suddenly at work, you get a promotion and you have to start working harder and you have to start working longer hours. And they ratchet up the stress on you that much more. There's a lot more pressure that goes along with your new assignment. You keep that same seven hours worth of training, but yet now because there's more stress outside of your training, that seven hours is going to be more difficult on your system. And you might actually get overtrained just by doing the same training that you've always done. Similarly, I think it's interesting, a side note, um, there's a lot of things about how nutrition can potentially uh, lead to overtraining or more specifically can keep you from getting overtrained. Um, a life factor that uh, a few different studies demonstrated contributed to overtraining was when athletes didn't pay enough attention, one, to their day-to-day nutrition and two, to the specific nutrition that that attended their heavy, hard workouts, their recovery nutrition. Um, and so one way to potentially stave off overtraining uh, is not only to lower your stress levels and get sleep, but also to watch your diet. Um, the researcher, by the way, after doing the 2000, the year 2000 meta-analysis I just described, that researcher's theory was ultimately that overtraining uh, was a result of damage to the body, overall damage to the body, uh, provoking a huge anti-inflammatory response um, and that just led to an overall system-wide shutdown. Um, it's an interesting theory, but of course, like I said, over training, we don't exactly know what's going on with it. Uh, There was also a 2001 study from Canada that I thought was interesting, and it's worth mentioning here as well. Uh, They took 10 athletes and they doubled their normal volume over a period of four weeks. Um, They tested them before, immediately after, and again following a two-week recovery period. Um, 10 athletes doubled their normal volume over the period of four weeks. During that time, they tested them at the beginning, they tested them at the end, zero of the athletes, zero of the 10 athletes improved their fitness despite the fact that they doubled their training over the course of those four weeks. Now, that's completely contrary to that kind of conventional wisdom or that common sense idea that I was mentioning before. Oh, I'll just go harder and that'll make me faster. I'll just do more and that'll make me better. No, these guys doubled their volume. You would think that that would make them better and in fact there was zero improvement in their fitness. Instead, seven out of the 10 of them developed signs of overtraining. They got ill, they got injured, they had decreased performance, uh, and they had a feeling of general fatigue in both their training and in their daily life. Um, In addition, the remaining three um, also showed a lot of those things as well, um, just at at less statistically significant uh, levels. Now, most interesting, I think, in this one is that they also had depressed levels of lactate. Um, Lactate, without getting too scientific about it, if you have depressed levels of lactate in your body or if you have depressed ability to produce lactate, which is what they had, that essentially means that you can't go as hard, you can't go as fast, particularly at anaerobic levels, and so it's going to reduce your performance. Um, their depressed levels of lactate, two weeks later, hadn't recovered. Their ability to actually produce lactate um, was depressed by this four-week super training period, and two weeks after that, it hadn't entirely recovered. Um, so that's an important thing to keep in mind that you think, oh, well, I'll just go really, really hard for a while and then recover. Eh, it didn't quite work that way. Um, and, and it shows a, a lot of the long lasting effects that overtraining could potentially have. Um, so the point of kind of mentioning those is to say that, that overtraining is real. It's, it's an actual thing. Um, and, and it's something that you need to be mindful of. So what can you do? First of all, monitor your heart rate. Um, there's been a few different studies about heart rate and overtraining. Specifically, there was a, a couple of really interesting ones, both done by the same guy. Um, in 1992, this, this study from the Netherlands uh, took seven male cyclists uh, for a two week block. So, only two weeks here that, uh, that they actually did it. Um, and they, they ratcheted up their training both in terms of intensity and in terms of volume. At the end of those two weeks, All of the athletes, all seven of them, uh, performed worse in a time trial compared to the testing they did at the beginning of the study. And so over that course of two weeks, when they were training harder and training longer, they got worse because they got overtrained. And interesting during this as well, they they took all sorts of different metrics from them. And the one metric that they noticed that really changed was their sleeping heart rate. Um, Not their resting heart rate per se, but their sleeping heart rate. Um, it increased from an average of 49 beats per minute up to 54 beats per minute. So about five to seven beats per minute they found uh, each one of these seven male cyclists while sleeping their heart rate changed. Now you think about your sleeping heart rate that seems like a strange thing to try and calculate but actually Fitbits let you ca- let, will find your sleeping heart rate for you. Um, your uh, iWatch, your Apple Watch will take your heart rate while you are sleeping if you ask it to, if you want it to. um, It can actually take it as well. And so there's all sorts of fitness devices out there that can take your sleeping heart rate. Even if you can't take your sleeping heart rate, you can take your morning heart rate, the heart rate that you get before you get out of bed. So your alarm goes off, you turn it off, and before you even move, you take your heart rate. You reach, you find your pulse, and you count it for a minute. Um, And if that is up then that's a sign that you might start beginning into overtraining. Um, that same author, by the way, that from the 1992 study from the Netherlands, uh, he performed a, a meta-analysis, one of those reviews of all the studies in 2003, uh, and he ultimately concluded that sleeping heart rate is the best indicator. Um, and he said that waking heart rate actually isn't. Um, there's so many things that can influence your heart rate as you're just walking about a room or as you're going up and down stairs or whatever it happens to be that, that if you just sort of take it at a random time while you're awake, it's not necessarily a good indicator, but if you take it first thing in the morning before you even move out of bed, um, or of course, if you get a device to take it while you're sleeping, it can be a really good indicator of whether in fact you're overtrained. Um, as I mentioned before, also... Um, if you wear your heart rate monitor during your workouts, during your hard workouts, and you find that your heart rate is not getting as high as it had been during your workouts, if your heart rate's not getting as high as it should be getting given the amount of effort that you're putting in, given how high your rate of perceived exertion is, that could be an indication as well. Second, the obvious one is that you need to allow your body to recover. We talked about this in the very first episode of this podcast. The way that training works is that you break your body down, then you rest, and it builds itself back stronger than it was before. Um, this is a hard, hard concept for a lot of people to wrap their minds around. Um, but if you can't just bring yourself to, to, to take time off, consider doing some down weeks, what I would call down weeks. Um, a down week would be where you, you, you go hard for about three weeks, and then during that fourth week, you back off. You take a little bit of rest, you reduce your volume significantly at least thirty percent um and and you will not lose any fitness, but you will in fact gain a couple of things. Um, there was a study in nineteen ninety uh, done at Ball State University where they took ten well trained distance runners um, they put them through four weeks of their normal training and then they did a three week down period, so they weren 't over training them during that three weeks mind or that that three weeks Uh, or that four weeks, pardon me, Uh, but then they did a down period where they dropped their volume by 70%, so a significant dropping. Um, They found that during that three-week down period, um, they didn't have any diminishing fitness, and in fact, they actually all got just a touch faster, Um, but they found more importantly that the inflammatory chemicals in their body dropped by about 60%. Um, now, you don't have to drop your volume all the way to s- by 70%, but if you drop it by about 30%, take a recovery week from time to time, that's basically allowing your body to recover to such a place where you'll t- be able to continue to build it stronger and stronger and stronger. An added benefit, by the way, of allowing your body to rest every three or four weeks um, is fewer stress fractures. Um, There was a 1998 study from Stanford uh, that says that when you start running, you have these cells that are called osteoclasts, and they eat away at the bone, and they clear the way for new bone cells to grow in and fill the gaps. Um, This is the reason why people say your bones actually get stronger when you run. Your bones get denser from running, um, and that's because you get new, solid bone tissue that's laid down by these osteoblasts, But before they can lay down the new strong bone, they have to clear out the old bone. And the timing's a little bit strange. They clear it out fairly quickly, but it takes about a month for it to actually grow back. And so there's this window in that first month, right around four weeks, when in fact your bones aren't quite all that strong. Um, so if you take the fourth week off, if you go three weeks on and one week off, that will stop... That process of of uh, that that way you'll keep yourself from actually uh, getting a stress fracture at a time when your bones might be their weakest because the osteoclasts have done their job, but yet the new bone structure hasn't grown back in strongly just yet. Um, That's the reason why, by the way that that. Um, People who are in basic training, recruits that are in basic training, report the highest levels of stress fractures they get are right around one month in. It's because the the osteoclasts have cleared all the old bone, um, but yet the new bone hasn't quite uh, gotten there yet. Um, The third thing I would suggest is to keep a log. Um, And when you keep your log, include your feelings, how you're feeling about it, how it went how things are going. Talk about your work situation. Talk about how well you're sleeping. Um, include metrics in it, such as your morning heart rate that you're taking from time to time, or better yet, your sleeping heart rate um, that you you are taking a look at. Now, obviously, you never want to become a slave to a log. Um, I have several athletes that I've told not to take data or not to log something in um, over the course of time and just tell me how they're feeling about stuff. Um, there have been times in my own athletic career where I have not Looked at the log. Um, don't become a slave to it. However, if you start finding that you're feeling run down, if you start to realize that your performances are, are, are flagging, you can look back through your log, and if you see a pattern of, of over-intense workouts or combining intense workouts with intense work situations, or if you start to see that you've been missing a lot of sleep lately or something like that, um, you can fix that before you actually fall into the doldrums of overtraining syndrome. Um, Fourth, and finally, um, follow your schedule. Um, Whether your coach is the one that gives you your schedule or whether you get sort of a boilerplate schedule off the internet, chances are good that the coach who wrote the schedule or your coach who is writing your schedule has very carefully balanced the rest and the recovery with the hard work that you're doing. Um, If you... Put every single one of your workouts on one day. um, Or if you add on workouts trying to impress your coach, it's not going to impress your coach. Um, It's going to annoy your coach because it's going to throw off that balance that your coach has tried to delicately bring together. Follow your schedule. Maintain that balance of rest, recovery, and hard work. And you will be better able to, to continue building your fitness and recovering from all the things that you're doing. You'll be better able to avoid all the terrible things that attend overtraining. So, back to Travis. Um, Today, this very day, on Facebook, I read Travis was responding to someone else's uh, post on the Black Triathletes Association. Black Triathletes Association, by the way, uh, it's a fantastic organization on Facebook uh, which aims to support uh, uh, the growth of triathlon inside the black community. It's probably the most supportive group of triathletes I've ever seen in any place, um, but it's a virtual group. And so, big shout out to the Black Triathletes Association. But anyway, there was a post on the Black Triathletes uh, uh, Association um, Facebook page where a woman was saying that, that that her coach had given her a hard time because she went out for a run too quickly after running a marathon. Um, and several people, including me, commented, yeah, you probably shouldn't have done that. And Travis, he of I Will Rest When I Am Dead, Travis, that guy, uh, wrote, quote, yeah, I still roll my eyes at the whole rest and recovery deal, but I'm slowly coming to grips with it in my third year, unquote. I am glad to see it, Travis, and I encourage all of you to come to the same realization that Travis has. Rest matters. It's important, and it would ultimately make you a much better athlete. Next week, we have what will undoubtedly be your favorite episode yet. Next week, we have uh, three guests that we're talking to. Uh, Number one, we have Brent Pease. Number two, we have Kyle Pease. Number three, we have... Paul Link. It's going to be fantastic. I've already interviewed Brent. I've already interviewed Paul. I'm looking forward to interviewing Kyle this week. Um, Talking to them about the Walking with KPZ initiative, about the Kyle Pease Foundation, um, about helping uh, athletes, physically challenged athletes, to uh, complete Ironmans and marathons and all sorts of fantastic things. Uh, It's an inspiring and meaningful interview, and I encourage you to tune in on it. (laughs) And there you have it, part two on fatigue. Uh, don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Pleasant Podcast, on Facebook at facebook.com pleasant podcast. And check out the show notes for this show and all the rest of them at mostpleasantexhaustion.blogspot.com. Give me your comments. Give me your questions. I look forward to hearing from you. Give me suggestions for future shows. I would appreciate that. Don't forget that we're on iTunes. Give us a review on there. Give us some stars. And please subscribe to us on iTunes as well. Check out itlcoaching.com and follow them on Twitter at itlcoaching and on Facebook at facebook.com slash itlcoachingandperformance. Don't forget, if you're looking to book travel uh, for a race, by all means, book it through my wife, the travel agent, facebook.com slash Casey Travel Planner MEV. That's K A C I E, Travel Planner MEV. Or drop her an email at Casey at UGA.edu. Thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week.